Well, good morning, everyone. I think you'll be pleased to hear I'm not another announcement. Um, we're actually going to be work continuing our journey through the Gospel of John. Um, for those of you who weren't here last week, we kicked off our series looking at the Gospel of John. We're going to be in there a while, um, smelling the roses as we go on through it. And this is um, almost part of a two-part series at the start, really, where we're breaking up the prologue in Chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 6 to 13 today. So if you've got your um, black, we're calling them Bible things, like... Journals, black things, it's there. If you haven't got one, put your hand up, because if you weren't here last week, you probably won't have one. So these are literally the ESV breakdown of the Gospel of John. Um, it's spaced out a bit, but also there's a blank page next to it um, where there's room for you to annotate, to write notes. If you feel funny about doing that in your normal um, Bible, it's a good chance to um, keep some memories of this series and, and some notes about things that were of impact to you. Um, so, yeah, put your hand up. You can grab that. If you, if you got one last week, um, you brought it along, you can pull it out. We're just going to be looking at verses 6 to 13. But we've got a bit of extra time this morning. And rather than listening to me the whole time, I thought perhaps you could do a bit of work to start us off. So um, what we're going to be focusing on a lot, as you probably gather from the slide, is this idea of Jesus being the light. So you've got a couple of minutes. I want you to chat about um, with whoever's beside you in a group of two or three, or if you're feeling on island, you've got spare seats other side, you can just reflect on it yourself and maybe write some notes um, in the Bible that you've got there. I want you to talk about what it means to you that, about Jesus being the light. What does that idea of Jesus the light mean to you? Okay, Take a couple of minutes, talk about that with each other in, in groups that are around you, um, or you can reflect on yourself, you can write some notes, and then we'll... Um, we'll start really having a look at verse 6 to 13 to see what God has to say. What does it mean to you that Jesus is the light? You can take a couple of minutes. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because when you hear about Jesus being the light, you sort of go, oh, yeah, I know that, right? But it's not something you really hear in everyday talk. You know, you're not going to say Shabu is, or you definitely wouldn't say Shabu is the light. You say, <laughs> Sorry, mate. <laughs> no, neither do I. It just came to me, so that's all right. Um, it's not something you'd use in everyday language to describe someone as the light, right? So it's interesting to have that conversation about well, what is different about Jesus? What makes him the light and what does that idea really mean? You know, one thing, um, there's a lot of claims that are made about um, Jesus in the first chapter of John. And one way that I like to think about something to understand what it means or to get my head around it is to think about the absence of that thing. What does it mean to not be in the light or to not have the light? You know, the best scenario I could think of is I reflected on a holiday that Mel and I went with the kids about 12 months ago where we went up to, took the kids up to Grampians um, in uh, July or August, I think, sometime last year. And we had that problem that a number of you can probably relate to this type of scenario where, you know, you've worked hard through the day, been looking after these kids, trying to keep everyone happy. Finally, they're asleep, they're in bed, it's, you know, looking nice and cosy, you sit down, but you realise you don't have any dessert. It's a massive problem, isn't it? It's a travesty, almost. You can't have that scenario. So, rightly so, I was sent off down the road to resurrect the situation and to try and hunt and gather, because there were some local shops about you know, six or seven minutes' drive down the road. Hopped in the car, went down the road, where it's about 8, 8.30 um, at night, which in winter is actually quite dark, because you've got the shorter days. And I did something I'd never really done before. Um, you know, you have that thought where it's like, man, it's dark. Like, for people who are used to living in the city as well, when you get out into the middle of the forest, it's like, it's a different kind of dark. And in hindsight, I did something which wasn't the safest thing in the world, in that I actually stopped the car in the middle of the road where I was and turned off the engine and all the lights. Now, 
In hindsight, probably should have moved to the side of the road before doing that. But wasn't really thinking straight, and you could see how dark it was. I felt that alone. I just stopped right in the middle of the road, turned my engine off and my lights off, and I just looked around. And it was dark, and I couldn't believe it's like can't see my hand in front of the face type dark. It was so dark. Um, because I think in the city, we're just not used to the absence of all light. I think there's so many lights and things in the city, even in the middle of the night, you kind of have this ambient light that's going around, or the moon can be out, and so there's still a bit of a haze, you can get a sense of it. But when you're out in the middle of the forest with no lights and no moon, it is so dark. And it took a couple of minutes before I had to turn everything back on, not because I realised what I was doing was incredibly unsafe in the middle of the road, but it was just unnerving for me. Um, you know, it leaves you feeling kind of vulnerable, sort of alone, you kind of feel lost, even though you sort of know where you're going, but it's like, I felt like I was going to get attacked by a wild animal all of a sudden. Um, it just, you were itching for the light to come back on again, but there's obviously nothing you can do to change the situation, can it? Obviously, turn on the engine of the car would be a starting point, but in today's passage, you know, John's picking up on this concept of Jesus being the light, and he's trying to speak that idea into our spiritual state before God. In verse 5, just before today's passage, we were told that the world is in darkness, but total and utter darkness. Because if you don't have Jesus, you've got the absence of all light, right? Total and utter darkness. It can't see the things of God. It can't engage with God at all. In fact, Nathan went a step further last week to say there's almost a, it represents almost a hostility towards God. The world is in darkness, and so it's left helpless, Alone, it's a description of being without hope and unable to change its state without the intervention of light. Yeah? And in verse 4, you read, But in Jesus was life, and that life was the light of mankind. In Jesus, our eyes can be opened. He is the light that desires to invade our souls with light and hope and confidence and forgiveness and remove our fear and uncertainty and instead replace it with hope and a future. He's the one that gives spiritual life to our soul and that life is the light we can hold on to in the midst of the darkness and lostness in the world in which we live. So having filtered that idea through into our minds in verses 4 to 5, when you get to this section in verses 6 to 13, it's like John really starts to unpack that idea of what that really means. What does it mean that Jesus is the light? And he does so by looking at a couple of different elements of it. In verse 6 to 8, he looks at John the Baptist as we unpack what it means to be a witness of the light. Then in verses 9 to 11, we read about the rejection of the light as we see about the world's initial response and continuing response, you would say, to Jesus Christ. But then in verse 12 to 13, there is some reassurance as we're reminded of the power of knowing that light. And we understand the idea of new birth. So let's journey through this section together, verses 6 to 13, and see what God has to say as we reflect on the implications of this idea of Jesus being the light. Now, it's not a long section, so what I might do is just read it. Hopefully, you've got it in front of you. If not, you can listen along. Um, it won't be on the screen, so I encourage you to get your Bibles out or at least listen along because there's only a few verses that we'll read through now. In fact, I'm reading from the NIV, so it might be slightly different from the versions in front, but it doesn't distinguish that much. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. 
He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Let's pray as we unpack some of these verses this morning. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the light. And we pray that your spirit will be present this morning as we seek to unpack what that means for us and how it should completely reshape who we are in you and how we should live in your name. Lord, we pray this. And as a church, we each said, amen. Okay. So verse 6 starts with this striking contrast from verses 1 to 5. One to five, all about Jesus, right? We've learned Jesus has always been. Jesus was God. We've learned Jesus was, he's referred to as the word. We've learned that all things were created through him and they continue to exist in him. We've learned that he is, in him is life and that life is the light of mankind. But then in verse six, we're not talking about God anymore. We're not talking about the word. We're just talking about a man. He's not referred to as the word, he's just given a name. This person is John. He's not the creator, he's part of the creation. He's not the one who is, um, he's not God himself, he's just someone who is sent by God. Importantly, he's not the light either, he is a witness to the light, it says in verse 7. So who's, John, who's the author talking about here? Well, it's not John the disciple, it's a person known at the time as John the Baptist. But interestingly, we all know him as John the Baptist, or he's commonly referred to that way, but he's not referred to that way in the Gospel of John. You won't see the word baptism or Baptist associated with. He's just referred to by his first name as John. Instead, you see the word witness is connected with his name 14 times. The author wants us, when we think of this person in John, he doesn't want us to be getting focused on baptism, although that was clearly relevant to why John the Baptist was sent, right? But the focus for the purposes of this gospel, he wants us thinking in terms of this idea of a witness. This guy was a witness to the light. He's not the one who's not, he's not the light. He's not the one who was sent by God. He's simply a witness of who Jesus was. He's not the Christ. He's not the Savior. But he was a witness to how all of those things were fulfilled in Jesus. Now, some of you might be asking the question, and rightfully so, if Jesus was the light, why does he need a witness? Now, if I'm at home and the light is on in the room, I don't need my wife to testify to the truth of that, right? You just see the light is on. You don't need a witness to verify that a light is on the room. So if Jesus was the light and he's shining into the darkness, well, why did he need a witness? Maybe let me use another illustration to make the point. One thing I love about kids is as they get a bit older, they tend to sleep really well. And a lot of you are looking at me going, they sleep well? It's like you get past that first two, two and a half years, and all of a sudden, when they finally conk out, they actually conk out really well. So our kids are at this beautiful stage that they can, they take a while to get to sleep, but when they get to sleep, you can kind of do whatever you want in their room. You know, the other night I went in, I flicked the light on, I put some clothes away, I moved Unas around, I put some toys away, turned off the light and walked off. 
Now, when I was in the room, was the light on? Yes, it was. I turned it on. Did the kids know the light was on? They had no idea, right? They didn't see it. They didn't experience it. Their eyes are completely closed to it. They didn't realize what was going on. Now, in some ways, it's the same with us. Jesus is the light, right? But we are blinded to it without the work of the Holy Spirit. Our eyes need to be open to see Jesus for who he really is. Our hearts need to be awakened to the reality of Jesus and the difference that he can make in our lives. Who he is, the word, the God, the creator, the one who brings all hope and salvation. There was a great point that was made in our small group on Tuesday night as we were unpacking this a little bit. And the point was made that we first need to understand our need for God and the fact that we are in darkness in order to appreciate the light and our need for Jesus. It's like you've got to understand your own spiritual state before God, understand our own sin and lostness and need for a saviour before we can understand Jesus is the light and his role in salvation. And this is the reason John the Baptist was sent, so that the people would be made aware of their sin, so that they would be brought to a place of readiness for repentance, and so that would lay the foundation for the coming message of salvation that Jesus was going to bring with him. Now, John the Baptist had a unique role in this regard, right? In that he was the one that God sent to pave the way for the physical birth of Jesus Christ. He was to trigger that call to repentance that was going to precede the message of salvation that Jesus would bring. And that's exactly what he did. You know, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He must become greater, I must become less. Jesus, uh, John the Baptist always pointing people away from himself and testifying to who Jesus really was and why we needed to know him. He was constantly pointing people to the work and person of Jesus Christ. But the desire for God to work through witnesses clearly didn't end with him. Now, he may have been the first, but he was certainly never intended to be the last. Look at what Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 20, verse 21. He says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus saves and then he sends. The language is even more clearer in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus is ascending to heaven and he looks down on those which are around him and he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be equipped and enabled by the Holy Spirit. God will be with you through his own spirit. But then he says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judah, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Our God saves and then he sends. John was a witness to Jesus in the coming birth of the Messiah. And now we are those, the continuation of God's desire to work through a witness. His intention has always been to work through his people so they might share the love of Jesus with those in their community. Being witnesses that testify with boldness to who Jesus really is, the Son of God, the Word, the light of the world. 
And we testify to this not because it's a truth that we've been told, not because it's something we somehow feel obligated to share as though we should, but because it's a truth that we know to be true. Because we've experienced that truth when we believe in him. We've experienced the life-changing reality of Jesus for ourselves. That's the testimony we have as witnesses of Christ, that Jesus saves, that he is the light, and that in him there is life. That's the testimony we all have when we believe in him. And that's the testimony we are called to declare publicly as witnesses of Jesus Christ. I pray that that is your testimony this morning. Because he wants to come in. He wants to cause his light to invade into our souls. He desperately wants to open the eyes of our hearts so we can experience the fullness of him so we can experience his life, so that our sins can be dealt with once and for all and our relationship with a living creator God can be restored. And when that miracle happens in our hearts, the next thing Jesus says is go. I am sending you. You will be my witnesses. John 1 verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Could there be any greater calling? Could there be any greater purpose? You see, God calls us to be witnesses to the light so that others might believe. What an incredible privilege we have, not just to experience the work of Jesus ourselves, but to then be part of others experiencing that same work in their hearts too. This is why right from the start, God's desire has been to work through a witness. I wonder what things might hold you back. What hold, I know the things that hold me back from being a witness for Jesus. You know, is it a perceived lack of opportunity or willing listeners? Is it a lack of confidence in what to say? Is it fear in what that response might be when we take that bold step to share about our faith? If it is, then I totally get all that, right? We've all can relate to it. But the truth I keep coming back to is that the person who Jesus sends, he will also equip. Jesus always goes before us. He will enable through the Holy Spirit. He will do a work. So let's cling on to him and go out as his witnesses and wait with anticipation to see what he's going to do. Because God will build his church, won't he? He will do a work. And having said all that, what we're reminded of in verses 9 to 11 is that being called to be a witness is going to be tough because people's natural inclination is to reject who Jesus is. Now, verse 9, there's an interesting statement, right? It says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, does that mean that Jesus shines light into the lives of everyone? In other words, that he's brought salvation to all. Well, 
You just need to look at verse 12 to get an answer to that. It says, Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become a children of God. Jesus is the light of the world, but that light is only received and experienced by those who place their faith and trust in him. But the promise is in verse 9 that for everyone who believes, for everyone who receives, for everyone who has faith in him, his life-giving light will be theirs. Their eyes will be open to them. Remember our purpose statement, John chapter 20, verse 31. We talked about this last week, right? It says, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the true light that gives light to every, all those who believe has come into the world, but what has happened? Did the world celebrate, scream and shout for joy, hooray, the Messiah is here? Was the world full of hope with what has happened? Did they, did they recognize that the light has just been turned on, that salvation has come? Well, John says instead, it says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus came as the one who offered life. He came to that which he had created, but his own creation didn't recognize who he really was. He came to his own people, most likely referring to the nation of Israel, but his own people didn't receive him. In other words, he came into the world but was rejected by that world because they didn't recognize who he was and didn't receive who he was. Now, I don't think we would be doing justice if we didn't ask the question, why? Why didn't they receive him? Why, when the word, the Son of God, the light of the world, comes into the world, why was that met with rejection by the substantive majority of people? Well, it's fair to say that the package of Jesus Christ was fairly different from what they were expecting. Rather than having the persona of a conquering king, he came as a servant. Born in a stable in Bethlehem, son of a carpenter from Nazareth, with the general perception being, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Rather than offering physical deliverance for an oppressed nation, he offered spiritual deliverance from the oppression from their sin. Rather than affirming the leadership of the religious authorities, he challenged that leadership and authority and questioned their place in the kingdom. The package of Jesus Christ was clearly so completely and utterly different from what they were expecting. And you see this play out really clearly in a number of different places in the Gospel of John. When Jesus is making claims about who he is, you see it in people's response. Perhaps none more clearly in John chapter 8, where Jesus makes this very claim before the Pharisees. And he says in front of them, "'I am the light of the world.'" Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in response, the Pharisees say back to him, Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Now, you don't need to dig too far back into the ancient Greek to understand the tenor of that response, do you? That's Pharisee language for saying, We don't believe you. 
We don't accept your testimony. They didn't recognize Jesus for who he was. They didn't receive him for who he was. And their hearts stayed in darkness. Now, I'm sure all of you who believe in Jesus would most likely agree that the world still doesn't recognize Jesus for who he really is. Ever since creation, sin has meant man's heart has been predisposed to rejecting him. You know, some will acknowledge him as a significant historical figure, but not the light. Some will acknowledge him as an influential teacher, but not the light. Some will acknowledge him as a good person, but not the light. Some will deny his existence altogether or acknowledging him as perhaps some religious leader in the day, but they won't acknowledge him as the light. Some get caught up on the church and the church's failings and issues with the church, and so they fail to look past the church to the person, Jesus Christ, and recognize that person for who he really is. This prologue of the Gospel of John gives us this stark reminder that when we don't recognize Jesus for who he is, the Word, the Son of God, the Light of Life, the Creator, we will never receive him. And for those who don't receive him, they then remain in this spiritual darkness. For we will never receive the life-giving light of Jesus unless we recognize him for who he really is and receive him as our Lord and our King. It's one of the most devastating truths of Scripture that the heart of mankind is prone to reject Jesus rather than receive him. It's a devastating truth, isn't it? Because we want to rule and reign on our own throne rather than hand that throne over to Jesus. We would prefer to act as though we're okay rather than throwing ourselves at the feet and at the mercy of a saviour. Many of us will feel more comfortable stumbling around in the darkness trying to make do with the life that we have rather than seeking out God and wanting to live in the light of his incredible love. And the consequence of that choice is devastating. For Jesus came to bring life. And in him is life. But outside of that life, there is therefore only death and sin and despair. What is our attitude and response to Jesus this morning? Is a scepticism? Not really convinced? Is it hardness of heart towards Jesus because of how we might have been hurt by the church or Christians in the past? Is it anger towards Jesus because of how life has unfolded for you? Is it confusion because in the busyness of life and kids and school and work and family, Jesus has kind of been left behind or left out of the picture? or pushed aside to another day? Is it doubt? Maybe you feel the Holy Spirit prodding at your heart, but you're wondering, is this really true for me? Is it fear? What if this is true? Well, guess what? It is. 
in him is life. And that life is the light of mankind. It is our hope. It is our salvation. It is our future. Whatever your attitude towards Jesus is, John is pleading with us to learn from the past. That we might not remain part of a world that rejects him and pushes him away. That we might not keep living our lives in darkness. That we might not simply ignore him or drown him out and put all this other stuff in our minds so we don't need to think about it. But that we would instead remember that for those who receive him, for those who reach out to him, for those who believe, there is life. And it's abundant life and it's real life. But without him, there is only darkness and death. And just in that point in the prologue when we're confronted with the reality of people's rejection of him, then in verses 12 to 13, we get this injection of hope. John then brings with him this hope as he looks at the power of the light in verses 12 and 13. Right at the start of verse 12, it says, Well, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, Straight away, you can see the contrast, can't you? That word yet, like, jumps out of the page. Jesus came as the light of the world for all those who believed. He sent John as a witness to testify about the light. Problem is, the world rejected the light, and then the word yet jumps out at you. Now, John is going to highlight for us an alternative outcome. He's not focused on the world anymore. And its rejection or failure to recognize Jesus, even though it was a different package from what they might have expected, he's all about the hope that we have in him. Yet to those who did receive him and believed in his name, what happened for those people? He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a child of God? I think that concept is one which we talk a lot about in Christian circles, being part of God's family, being children of God. But because of that, I think the significance of that idea can sometimes be taken for granted or assumed. See, when the Gospel of John speaks about being a child of God or born of God or being born again, as it talks about in chapter 3 with Nicodemus, which we'll deal with soon, we immediately need to think in terms of new life. Since the fall, the time when sin entered the world, mankind has been dead. Now, the living dead, if you like, in that we go about living our physical existence, but in a spiritual sense, we are dead towards God. The new birth is where the Holy Spirit takes what was once dead and injects a new life into it, a newness of life. It makes it alive again. That's new birth. The Holy Spirit breathes spiritual life into our soul, and it is a work and a miracle of God. And all of a sudden, it's like we are alive to Him. We are alive to His presence. We are alive to the things of God. We are alive to what Jesus is doing and who Jesus is. And we are alive to the fact that we have a completely new identity in him. Children of the living creator God. Isn't that incredible? We've gone from being dead to be giving a completely new life and new identity as a child of the creator God. 
And when we understand this concept of the new birth, we, we finally can start to get our head around the fact that what we need is not an improved life. We need an entirely new life. Do you see the difference? We can easily fall into the trap of thinking, if I fix up one or two things about my life, then everything is going to be better. We can easily start thinking that if I become a slightly better person, then that will make things better for me, right? If I can be slightly stronger or slightly fitter, then I'll start to feel that much better about myself. If I can be a slightly smarter person, then things will be okay. If I could be that little bit more successful, then I reckon life would be a whole lot better for me. If I could be a little bit more resilient, then I'll be able to deal with my circumstances. Then everything will be okay. And we start believing, like the rest of the world, that improvement of self or improvement of health or improvement of our circumstances is all that we need. But we don't need an improved life. And we don't need an improved nature. And we don't need an improved relationship with God. We actually need an entirely new one. We need to be made new by the work of the Holy Spirit to be reborn as a child of the living God. And let's just pause for a second and reflect on what that means to be a child of the living God. It means a closeness of relationship with God and intimacy as a father has with a child. It means total security in our acceptance before God. In Christ, we no longer have shame. We no longer need to run and hide as they did in the Garden of Eden. We can instead run to the Father, no matter what life has held for us or what our history might be. It means we have a new identity within that family. It means we have complete forgiveness of the past and unlimited grace for the future. It means we have an internal inheritance as a co-heir with Christ. It means we have a new family, brothers and sisters in Christ who are united around the blood of the Lamb and Jesus Christ himself. And all of this new life, new identity, new relationship, all of this is his work, isn't it? You can't, you can't read verse 13 without missing that point. It says that children of God are children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will. It's got nothing to do with us, or our acts, or our decisions, or our intentions, or our improvement of self. It is child who is born of God. I don't think John could be any clearer, clearer in declaring that this work of regeneration is the work of God. And it's not an improvement of self. It's actually an entirely new self. It's nothing to do with us or our physical heritage. Or our heritage. It's got nothing to do with our head knowledge or our acts of service around the church, as noble and impressive as those things might be. It's got nothing to do with how well-known or respected we are in Christian circles. This new birth is all of God, isn't it? That's the work of salvation. It is all his. We can't earn it. We can't suddenly discover it by looking inside ourselves and making a few tweaks. It is all of God. 
Salvation is a spiritual act that is brought about by a spiritual God, and so all praise and worship needs to go to him. In 1 Peter 1.3 it says, Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an eternal inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. Praise be to God that in his grace he was willing to send his son the word to dwell amongst us and to walk the walk that took him all the way of the cross so that through his act of sacrifice we might be made new, entirely new, a new creation in him, a new life in him, a new identity in him, a new nature in him, not an improved self, an entirely new one. You know, earlier, I think we wrestled with one of the most devastating truths of Scripture. I think then it gets followed up in verses 12 and 13 with one of the most encouraging truths of Scripture, that Jesus offers new life to all those who believe in him. It's not complicated, is it? At the same time, it's one of the most incredible truths that you can try and wrap your head around. And more than that, it's the most critical truth for us to try and wrap our head around. How might God be wanting his promise of new life to be a reality for us? It might be that he's asking you to stop looking to yourself to make your life better, but to instead turn to him and to start praying for a new life altogether, a new soul, a new sense of the presence of the incredible creator God. It might be that God's asking you to stop rejecting and to start believing. Now, you may have been running for God from quite some time, rejecting, turning away, pushing aside, or just drowning him out. But maybe God has started prodding at your heart to believe and let the Holy Spirit, let his light invade into your worn out and beaten souls again, to inject new life into your circumstances so that you can recognize that no matter what my circumstances might bring, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and he brings hope and life and love and light. For others of you, perhaps God is just wanting the Holy Spirit to inject that new sense of life into your soul again. A greater awareness of his presence, a greater closeness in your walk with him, a greater dependence on him, a greater connection with him as a child has with a father. Well, all of those things are found when we shift our gaze to him, when we recognize that Jesus is life. In him is life, real life, abundant life, new life in him. Well, there once was a man who was sent from God whose name was John, 
now there's a church universal, right, which is sent from God as a witness to the light. That's our witness. It won't be easy because we all understand the reality of man's heart and its natural rejection of him. It's going to be and is a challenging road. And we know the devastation of people making the wrong choice before God and failing to recognize Jesus for who he is. But praise God that, praise God for the power of the light, that no one is beyond his reach. That new life is offered to all those who believe in him. And their promise is there will be those who believe in him. Yet to those who do believe, who receive, they are granted the right to become a child of God. It's an amazing truth, the scripture, isn't it? And it sets the tone for so much of the Gospel of John, which is all focused around people, please, believing in this, so that you might taste the life that only he can give. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the word, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the light of mankind, and that in him there is life. There is new life. There is abundant life, Lord, and therefore outside of him there is only darkness and death. And Lord, may we appreciate that more and more every day, not so that we get lost in despair, but so that we might turn to you and experience the hope and salvation that can be found in you. Experience the forgiveness, the love and grace that we have in you, so that even though our hearts may be predisposed to rejecting you, Lord, We praise you that when we turn to you, there is life and life and life that is given in abundance. Lord, our circumstances will come and go, but you are a once and forever constant that leads into all eternity. And may we always, therefore, fix our eyes on you, the light of the world, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we pray these things, and as a church, we all said, Amen.